0: So like I said, last weekend uh, we were gone. Let me tell you about it. Uh, my sister-in-law, Abby's older sister, got married. Very exciting. It was a lot of fun. Um, but that meant that Abby left last Wednesday night to go and help her sister do you know, all the pre-wedding things, which is fine. She should totally get to do that and spend that time with her sister. It's a very uh, unique time. Um, but where the story gets dicey is that that left me with all three kids. And <clears throat> thank you. <laughs> now, I don't know what kind of parent you are when you're by yourself. I become a very different kind of parent when it's just me. Because, you know, when you have kids, you got all these lofty goals. Like, I want them to, you know, find their purpose in life. And I want to be a good parent and nourish them and not, you know, mess them up in any irreplaceable or irreversible ways. And, but when it's just me, all that goes out the window. The only thing that matters is surviving. And... You know, there's no pleasant family meals. It is just getting kids food they will eat without whining too much and then yelling at them the whole time so they don't spill something on themselves or the floor. Um, bath time. Oh, it's not pl- there's no playing at bath time when it's only dad, okay? It is making sure the water is not too hot. It's making sure they scrub all the important places and then making sure they don't get water all over the ceiling and floor and walls like they tend to do. Um, and Eleanor, our two-year-old, might look really cute. But her life's mission is to put things on the floor. If it's in a drawer, it needs to be on the floor. If it's in a cabinet, it needs to be on the floor. All the movies, they don't belong in the TV stand. Where do they belong? The floor. Every container on the floor. That's all she does, except when she's trying to break into the bathroom and brush her teeth with someone else's toothbrush. That's pretty much her entire day is all she does. And then the other added thing about this whole wedding thing was that I was in charge of packing the children for the first time. Uh, for a weekend away. Now, Abby has always done that before, and I never understood why she got so stressed out. I get it now. Now, to be fair, I, I didn't even do it entirely alone. She set out all the important wedding clothes for me, but I had to make sure, you know, we had clothes for everything else, shoes for the right stuff, um, so that they didn't have to wear their wedding stuff when it wasn't wedding time and risk getting it dirty. I had to make sure there were enough diapers, make sure we had Dramamine so no one threw up on the way to the wedding or from the wedding, and and then I had to iron. I was in charge of ironing the wedding clothes, which is pointless, by the way, because anytime you put clothes on two young boys, they're ruined immediately. Like it's it's like we're never wearing this again. You've got it stained. There's no chance, and. So I get over there, and everything's fine for the rehearsal stuff. But then the other thing that's probably the most dangerous part of this whole weekend was that I was in charge of getting the children ready for the wedding. That meant I had to, by myself, make sure they were in the right clothes. Everything was tucked in, buttoned up. Hair was done appropriately. And this might shock you, but I'm not really great at doing hair. (laughs) It's not really my thing. Especially when you've got a little girl who has lots of hair, long hair, and she never stops moving while you're trying to put it in some sort of a ponytail. If you've ever wondered why sometimes she's got a ponytail right here on the side of her head, it's because she didn't stop moving and we thought, fine, that's good enough. It's out of her face. Move along. And so, yeah, it, it's just not its just not my thing. And so then we get to the wedding and they... Um, just kids all over the place, but Abby was in the wedding, so that meant I'm still kind of on my own during the wedding stuff, and the pre-wedding stuff, and then there's the pictures, and the kids are never all just in the pictures at one time, you know, it's here's a few, 20 minutes off, here's a few more, 10 more minutes, here's a few, and so it's just like, I'm just following them around, making sure they don't ruin something for this wedding, and everything seemingly went off without a hitch, but I am exhausted still, it put every dad skill I thank you every dad skill I had was put to the test and I'm not really sure I passed any of the dad tests that I was on but we got them there we got them back everyone's alive and I don't think I did any damage that their future therapist won't be able to correct so <laughs> mission accomplished now the reason I tell you all of that is because I like to complain. It is one of my favorite pastimes. I like to speak as if my life is so incredibly difficult that you would look at me as if I'm a superhero just for doing everyday normal things. And today we're starting a series called Me and My Big Mouth. And we're going to talk about all the ways, not just that our mouths get us in trouble, but all the ways that our mouths do damage to us and the people that are hearing what comes out of our mouths and it is really easy, because we talk so much, so many words come out of our mouths in a given day, it's easy to forget how powerful that our words can be. Because most of the words that come out of our mouth, we don't treat them as powerful. We just treat them as whoop filler, something, the first thought that came to our minds, it just flies out without really any thought or warning. And a couple of the reasons why words are so powerful is, one, what is inside of you will eventually leak out of your mouth. And what I mean by that, any negativity, any underhandedness, any selfishness or bitterness will in some way eventually find its way out through your words. Another thing that makes your words powerful is that your words will in large part direct the course of the relationships in your life. And your relationships direct determine in many ways the course of your life as a whole. And so The way you speak will determine the types of relationships you have or the types of relationships you are unable to have. Um, Sometimes the way you talk, what you will be doing is you will just be lowering the bar for the people around you so that they will speak more negatively, they will speak more critically, they will be whining and doing all these things and thus rubbing off on you even more. Or the people in your life that are mature and who could help you be a better person, if you speak In such a bad way, negative way, whatever way it is, long enough, they'll leave. Because they're like, I don't want to put up with this. I don't want to hear this all the time. And so you can critically damage your life just with your words. Now, Jesus, who is the center post of our faith, the pillar of all that we believe, the one who we believe was God who came down into our world and lived a human life of perfection, died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave giving us hope that one day we can defeat death as well. He had a half-brother, a couple half-brothers that we know of, and one of them was named James. And James spent most of his young life not believing that his brother was who he said he was. And suddenly, somewhere along the way, James changed his tune, probably when he saw his brother after he died, That would change a lot of people's tune. I don't know what it would take for you to believe that your brother or your sister was God, but seeing them come back from the dead would probably do it for a lot of us, and that worked for James. And so he ended up being not only a believer, he not only lived the majority of his life and died believing that his brother was in fact God and his Savior, he was a major leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And he wrote a letter (coughs) that we have in our New Testaments. We just call it the book of James. And in that letter, he talks about the power of your words, of our words. Uh, Only he doesn't say words. He says the power of the tongue, because the tongue is kind of the part of your body that does a lot of the forming of the words. Here's what James says in James chapter 3. He says, see also the tongue is a small member, meaning it's a small part of your body. It's not like the big leg muscles you have, okay, or other parts that we may be growing around the holiday season or anything like that. Your tongue's a tiny part of your body, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, our other body parts, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. He's saying your mouth can get you in a whole lot of trouble. And for many of us, that is going to be the natural inclination is for our mouths to get us in trouble and do a world of hurt. Our words are an indicator both of who we are on the inside and the kind of impact that our life will have on others as we live it. So during the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the power of our words and some of the dangerous ways that we tend to speak. Now, today we're going to talk about complaining. And I don't want to talk about it. I'll just be honest with you. I like complaining. It makes me feel better about myself. And yeah, you give me whines that are sarcastic, but I th- they feel good still. You know, It still feels like sympathy to me. And so, um, <coughs> I have always been a person who has had a tendency toward the dramatic. I've tried to kind of temper that as I've gotten older, but I've always had a tendency toward the dramatic. I'm starting to see that in my children, which is just great. And... and <laughs> But but I, but it's it's this every problem in my life is the worst problem, every inconvenience is the worst inconvenience that anyone's ever experienced in the history of inconveniences. Um, every time I get caught at a train when I'm already running late, it's why God have you abandoned me? You know I'm I'm cursing God for that horrible horrible moment, and so, being that I am drawn towards the dramatic and seeing things as worse maybe than they really are, complaining becomes very natural for me. It's very easy for me to complain. I usually play it off with sarcasm or humor, um, but often I just want people to see and appreciate and praise how difficult my life is. And hearing someone else complain, you might think, wow, they're really negative. That's all they do is complain. But there's more at stake than just maybe someone being a negative person. Complaining is actually a symptom of something much larger going on in our hearts. And so I want to talk about that as we uh, go forward. It's something poisonous more that's at the root of all these complaints in my heart and in your heart. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a portion of a letter um, written by the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, he's a great person to listen to when it comes to teaching on how Christians should live. Because he was a first century Jewish priest who hated Christians. He thought they were corrupting the Jewish faith that he loved and spent his entire life learning about and focusing his life on. He thought these Christians were coming down and leading people astray from the truth. And so he wanted to get rid of them, so much so that he took on a job with kind of the Jewish establishment, religious establishment, where he would go and round up Christians to be arrested and killed. And then one day, he had an encounter with the risen Jesus and became a Christian And it was such an abrupt turn in his life that other Christians were, like, scared of him because they were like, wasn't he the guy that, like, two days ago was throwing people in jail? Like, I don't think I want to believe him. Maybe this is a trap. But he went on to be one of the major contributors of our New Testament. He wrote most of the books in our New Testament. And he became a church planner where he traveled all over the ancient Roman world taking the, the story of Jesus anywhere he went. And so what he would do is he would go and he would plant a church, and then he would move on and plant another church once that church had got established. But he would write back to that previ- the previous churches to give them additional teaching, instruction. If there was a problem and they had questions, he would write these letters back. And those letters are what have, been sur- has, what have survived thousands of years, and we have those in our New Testament. And one of the letters that Paul wrote was to an, a church in an ancient Roman colony um, called Philippi. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time in the book of Philippians, is what we call it, but it's simply a letter that Paul wrote. If you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and flip there, Philippians chapter 2, it's going to be on page 980 if you use the black Bible near you. If you brought your own Bible, I have no idea what page it's on, but good luck to finding it. (coughs) But Paul, again, he's writing to these people that he is no longer with, so that he can, again, guide them in their walk with Jesus. So he can guide them in a way to ground themselves in their faith in Christ in a way that's going to lead them further and cling them to Jesus for the rest of their lives. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. Meaning, he was in heaven. Okay, He was above all things in the riches and joy of heaven. And Jesus... Did not consider that something to be held on to with a death grip, but rather he was able to relinquish that, step out of heaven into our world humbly. To, become, to be God and to lower yourself to live a human life, that's a big downgrade, a big step down. It says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. Above all else, you need to pursue humility. Humility means other people before you. Their interests above your interests. Their well-being above your well-being. You are here to serve, not be served. And the example he gives us is, of course, Jesus. You need to pursue the humility that Jesus showed when he stepped out of heaven and spent an entire life serving us, even to the point of dying for us, in a very brutal and terrible fashion. And and then he goes on to say, okay, you're going to pursue humility. Great, that's the, that's the job I've given you. That's the calling that I've placed before you. Every Christian pursues humility with everything you've got. And then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Meaning, you guys listened and you followed and you obeyed when I was with you, so now, keep doing it when I'm not there. I'm just writing you this letter, but I want you to keep doing it. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, there's this phrase, work out your salvation, that can cause some trouble in your mind if you don't understand what Jesus did for you. You see, when you become a Christian, because of Jesus' death on the cross, he took every sin you've ever committed, every sin you still have yet to commit. He died for it and paid the price for it. When you become a Christian, you receive that forgiveness. And in an instant, you appear before God as fully forgiven, fully saved, fully sin- sinless, absolutely perfect. As if you have never done anything wrong in your life. You immediately receive this status of perfect. But, your behavior lags behind this status that you've been given. So even though God sees you as perfect, you're not exactly going to live a life that's perfect. So he says, keep working out your salvation, meaning keep working to live up to the status that Jesus has given you as a perfect, redeemed creation. Saved creation. Excuse me. And that we aren't just doing it by our own strength. This isn't just white-knuckling your way to be better, but it says... He says God is with you. It's the power of God in you. Meaning that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit as Christians to live inside of us to give us extra supernatural strength to actually try to be better, to try to live up to this status that we've been given. And so we do not work out our salvation. That's not that's not saying do good so God will save you. No, we're already saved. And so we Work out our salvation out of gratitude for God, out of the love that he's shown us, just because he's been so good to us. And when we live closer to who Jesus was, our lives are actually better. So he says, okay, pursue humility in all things because you're not there yet. You're a work in progress. And then he goes on to say a little bit of how can we pursue that humility? What are some of the ways that we can work out that salvation so that hopefully we can be more humble like Jesus? And that's where we come to verse 14. <clears throat> Do all things without grumbling. Not most things, not some things, not work things, not home things, all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do all things without grumbling. Another word for grumbling is complaining. Another word for complaining is whining. Okay, All of that fits in there. And man, if that verse could just be out of the Bible, I would be okay with it. Because again, I like to complain. But let's put all these pieces together. Strive for humility, because you are a work in progress. You're not there yet. How do you strive for humility? By doing things without grumbling. What's the connection between complaining and and humility? Well, it's that complaining only builds up yourself. Complaining is not them first, serving other people. Complaining is all about you serving you and me serving me. It's about me putting a spotlight on myself. And, man, I I just think of my own life. And the ways I complain, every time I complain, it's so that you will think about me. Um, And it's basically us trying to convince people that we are heroes and we should be praised and applauded just for getting out of bed every day. And, and, And it doesn't matter what you complain about. We all have our own brand of complaining. Okay, mine's usually about my kids and how tired I am. Maybe yours is um, all you know, the various ailments that are piling up as age piles up. Maybe it's how rough your work life is and how stressful it can be. Maybe it's about the family drama that's holding you back. And if it weren't for that mom or that cousin or that whatever brother or sister you had, life would be great. Whatever your version of complaints is, when we complain, we're just trying to get people to look at us. Oh, you got to run away there. Um, <laughs> Okay, and there's and and there's different ways that we can make ourselves look good when we complain. Okay, for instance, like I said, um, my way to my my way to complain, my preferred way to complain is to make me look selfless and serving. Okay, even though that's not what complaining is about, I want to portray that. Okay, and so I'll tell my wife how tired I am, but then I'll still go change the diaper so that it's like, boy, I was really tired, but I still stepped up (laughs) to be the super dad. I was exhausted, but I did it for you, honey. Like, it's that kind of, but it's this twisted way of using selfishness to try to mask myself as a selfless person. Sometimes we will complain, not about how, you know, serving we are, but maybe we'll complain in a way to convince other people how smart we are. If you've ever been in a situation where there was a change, maybe at work, that you didn't like, or that nobody liked, and it just made some, you know, friction because things were changing and... You know, it's just growing pains and all that stuff that goes along with changes. And you can start going to your coworkers like, our boss is so stupid. You know, if I'd have been in charge, I wouldn't have done that. In fact, I would have done this. And you start launching on all these hypotheticals that will never, ever happen, and it's just a, simply a way to say, look how smart I am. I'm smarter than all these people who get bigger paychecks than me, and if I was in charge, I'd really be better than all of them. And it's just a way to boast about yourself. And we do the same thing in the church world when things change and things happen, and we don't like them, and so we start to whisper, I don't like this, and this is dumb, and I should have done it this or they should have done it this way, and if only they'd ask me, but no. Nobody asked me. And we, we complain. Again, it's just another way to say, look at me. Whatever your end goal is, that's what it is. It ends up being about you. And one of the other problems, aside from it just totally killing your ability to be humble, is that complaining can actually open you up to an entire world of compromise with sin. Because if you whine about how tough your life is to enough people, you will start to believe your words. And if life is hard, if you feel like life has slighted you, that's going to open you up to thinking, well, you know what? Life is taken from me, so I deserve it. I, I am owed to be able to take a little bit back. And you might think, you know, you've got a little bit to take something that doesn't belong to you because you're owed. You know, that's the, and it can be little things or big things, little little ways to undermine your integrity. It can be that I paid, I said I wanted a cup of water, but I went and got soda which they're smart now they only give you clear cups for that okay we're no we we we've burned that bridge people the human race has burned that bridge because we tried sneaking enough okay maybe you have come up with this excuse saying that you can maybe ignore your kids sometimes because you had a hard day at work and so they can fend for themselves and I'm going to go out with my friends because I deserve it you can do things like Um, convince yourself that you you deserve to spend money in a really unwise way that's going to damage your future because everything's been so hard on you, you deserve a treat, you deserve this vacation, you deserve this thing, and you open yourself up to problems and compromise and pain. Or maybe even when you are so determined to complain about something that you don't even know all the details of what's going on, and so you complain, and you fill in the, the details with, hearsay, or gossip, or maybe just straight-up lies to make what you're saying and your complaints sound more powerful. It is a dangerous road, and we don't think it is because it's just a little whining, it's just a little complaining, but it's poison to your heart. And I'll tell you why this is such a big deal when it comes to this calling to be humble. You've never complained your way to being more humble. Guaranteed. You've never whined about how bad you had it, and ended up walking away more like Jesus. I haven't either, which means, which means I've wasted a whole lot of words that did no good, that led me farther away from Christ, not to Christ. Whining, complaining, it does nothing for you. It might be a slightly cathartic act that feels good in the moment, feels a little bit good on your soul, but the dangers far outweigh the complaints. The dangers far outweigh any feel good that it might give you in the moment. And if our example is supposed to be Christ, I can't come up with any verses where he outright just complained about how bad he had it. And he knew his entire ministry that his life was going to end on a cross, a brutal horrible way to die. And he never once said, man i got to go to this cross, my dad is the worst. He never did any of that. In fact, he, he did pray before going to the cross, Father I'm scared to death of this and if there's any way that we could not do this, that would be great, but if this is what you have for me, then I fully obey. And he committed to honoring God no matter what. And it's, it's painful because as I read this, it's like, okay, Jesus went to the cross, like nails either through the center of his hand or through his wrists and his feet, and never complained about that. And if I get a splinter, I'll milk that all day for sympathy. Poor me, I, them. I can't do anything. Oh. We got Jude thinks he's broken his pinky right now. Maybe he has. I don't know. We haven't taken him to the doctor because it's a pinky. You got nine other fingers, kid. Get over it. And I'm a better dad than that. That's not. But but all day he can't do anything. He takes a shower last night. Dad, I can't dry off. I can't hold the towel. Dad, I can't write. Dad, I can't draw. I can't do anything. You know. But but that's that's what I do. Where did he learn that from? From me. Anytime I, anything bad happens, like oh my life is awful. I can't do anything. Abby, you take care of it. I'll just sit here in the corner and cry. You know. And and it's like, but Jesus never did that. Did Jesus complain about how terrible people were treating him when they hung hung him on the cross? No, what did he do? Prayed for him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And it's like, I'm so far away from Christ's likeness in this area of my life. I've been given the status of perfect, and I have not been trying to be better in this area. And i got to tell you, I've tried a little bit this week, and it has made my level of joy and satisfaction with my life go through the roof because I'm not wallowing in the silly little things that don't matter. I'm not looking for ways to, to make my life look worse. And it changes everything. It really does weigh on your heart when you live your life to complain and so I want to challenge all of us. If this is something that is detrimental to your spiritual journey, if this, is, if this is hindering you from working out your salvation and living like Christ the way we're called to as believers, then I want to give you a challenge. And that challenge is for 24 hours to not complain. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you, cut you a break. You can start tomorrow. I'll give, you, I'll give you about 13 or so hours to get your head in the game, okay? But that means you wake up tomorrow morning and not complain once. Do I think you can do it? Probably not. (laughs) I can't. I'm going to fail. But we're going to try because we're here to, we're not perfect. We're not there. We're works in progress. We have the status of perfection, but we're still trying to live up to it. And so we will try to be more like Christ and block these complaints out because complaints are only, a focus, a way to focus on myself. And you are too small of a goal to focus your entire life on. Hate to break it to you. Nobody gets remembered in the books of history for focusing on themselves unless they did really, really bad things because of that. Nobody is ever remembered. Nobody gets murals painted about them because they lived their life for themselves. Nobody writes songs about the people who lived their lives for themselves. Now, obviously, I don't want you to take this to a ridiculous extreme. If tomorrow your stomach is hurting terribly and you think, I might have an appendicitis, but Anthony said don't complain, so I guess I'll just carry on to my death. Like, tell somebody, go to the ER, feel free. But don't do that. But I think you get what we're talking about here. The needless complaining most of the time that we all like to give to, uh, give into. And here's why. Here's kind of the mindset I want you to approach it with. Every time you complain, before, hopefully before those words come out of your mouth, stop yourself and realize and say, okay, instead of serving myself by complaining, I'm going to instead do something for someone else. I'm going to rotate this focus away from myself. And instead of complaining, I'm just going to look at how I can serve somebody around me. Maybe the person you were going to complain to, or maybe the person you were going to complain about. Either way. Take this focus off of yourself and try to shift it into being a person who, like Christ, serves instead of working to be served. And as difficult as that might be, and as maybe this is a, an exercise in futility, because none of us are going to probably nail it out of the park with 24 hours of not whining. We are here to work at our salvation with fear and trembling, meaning we're supposed to give this all we got, because God gave us all he had. When Christ stepped out of heaven, lived a perfect life for us, died on the cross for our sins, and he never whined about, man, these people, if they just weren't so horrible, I wouldn't have to do this for them. No, he loved us all the way to the end. And so we want to return the favor by pursuing Christ-like humility with absolutely everything we've got. 24 hours, starting tomorrow. You can do it. Hopefully we can do it together. We can have a Loamy Christian Church complain-free day I'll put a remind, some reminders on social media so that you can wake up tomorrow and go, oh, man, I forgot about that. that man, yeah. Oh, that's complaining, though. So maybe I want, should I? I don't want to lead you. I don't want to make you stumble. But oh well, we'll, we'll do it together. Okay, we're in this together. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Pursue Christ-like humility at all costs. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful <coughs> to be here again as a church family. And to be able to take up this challenge as, of, as a church family. Hopefully we can maybe help each other as we go through tomorrow. As we complain maybe to one another. That we can say, oh, you remember, we're not complaining today. We're going to pursue Christ-likeness. Our goal is not to serve ourselves, but to serve others as Christ has served us. So let us walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And let this not just, again, be something that we do tomorrow as a silly exercise because of a sermon. But let this be an honest pursuit of you. Let this be an honest effort to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, not just for a day, but something that maybe tra- it nudges our, our life more in the proper trajectory of being somebody who is humble as Christ is humble. So thank you, Father, and may your Holy Spirit give us supernatural strength to bite our tongues tomorrow and to turn our focus outward toward others so that we might be more servant-minded and less selfish and and focused on all that's wrong in our lives, but maybe all the right we can do in someone else's. Again, we're grateful for Christ and the path he laid out for us. May we follow it well. In his name we pray. Amen.